1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Kablinska, and I'm joined here today by Professor Juliana Nott of the Free University of Berlin, where she is part of the Art Historical Institute. We will be talking about her book, Transmedial Landscapes in Modern Chinese Paintings, which is coming very soon from the Harvard University Asia Center. And it tracks a relatively short but transformative period in, in, in ink painting. Um, in the years um, roughly uh, the same as the Nanjing decade of 1927 to 1937. In her own words, Professor Nott focuses on 20th century Chinese art, or how it was redefined with regard to historical practices, as well as global entanglements and institutional frameworks. And although today we will be talking about this most recent book, um, Professor Nott has also published extensively on socialist period art practice and is currently developing a project on cultural revolution art, which I had the great pleasure of hearing about earlier this summer. But I will let Professor Nott herself tell you more about her work. Um, Welcome to the program, Juliana, and thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Julia, for, for inviting me.
1: It's a pleasure. So as usual, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a bit about your background, how you came to study Chinese art and how your work led you to this subject and this book.
0: Yeah, basically, I think I was kind of thrown into the field of Chinese art by my parents when they brought me to to China as a child, and um, that was back in 1979. And, um, also they were friends with lots of, uh, artists from those independent art groups like the Wuming Hua So, um, yeah, so I think I got in touch with, uh, Chinese art and modern Chinese art at a very early stage. And, um, I didn't plan to, but it's kind of turned out that I studied art history and Chinese studies and went to Beijing to, um, to study there for a year at the Central Academy of Fine Arts. And uh, initially, I wanted to work on contemporary art. Uh, and then I I kind of I came across a painting catalogue of, of Shilu. And uh, I saw it and I just thought, okay, this is it. And then I started doing my MA thesis and my PhD thesis on, on Shilu, who was a painter, landscape painter, active during the socialist period. And... Um, the question that kind of drove my, my uh, PhD dissertation back then was, or one of the questions was, what makes modern landscape painting modern? So where actually is the difference to pre-modern practices conceptually and technically and formally? And um, so for my second book it seemed quite natural to me to uh, to to go back in time to the Republican period that came before the socialist period and look uh, at how everything started and another thing that was that I maybe kind of posed to myself as a challenge was uh, how to how to write about a, a painter like Huamin Hong who is a very interesting and very of course, very famous too, but also kind of. Um, well, at the beginning, I find I found him kind of, uh, yeah, forbidding in a way. So not so easy to comprehend, and I wanted to make uh, sense of his work from for myself, and this is how. So he he was the beginning uh, of of what became this book.
1: Uh, I see. And we'll get to the chapter on him where we get into that forbidding uh, nature (laughs) Um, as the oldest, right, of the painters that you consider. Absolutely. But before we go there, um, I want to turn to the theoretical underpinnings of your project. Uh, The term transmedial, as someone who locates themselves in media studies, that's the first term that caught my attention in your book. And of course, it's the first term in your title. Um, What does that mean? What is transmedial practice and how does that term and maybe media studies more broadly fit with or intervene in the discipline of chinese art history how are you positioning yourself with this book
0: um i'm i'm not yeah you, know, you i mean uh, some other time maybe you should have to you should tell me how how you think about this term as a media studies person so i was basically thinking it from from the um from from the point of artistic medium so um ink painting oil painting photography woodblock printing so um and um it's uh yeah the title is now transmedia landscape but actually it was transmedia practice so it had this it was a longer title in the beginning which was too long eventually <laughs> and uh, it included the term transmedia practice and um well it comes from from Lydia Liu's translingual practice actually So um, what really helped me think through these processes of how Chinese landscape painting became modern uh, was her idea of of translation, of of the focus on the host language and on the creative possibilities that emerge in the processes of of translation and um, also the conflicts that arise in the process of translation or how these are negotiated when a new term or a new technique is found for a new problem that came from outside. And um, yeah, by looking at how the Chinese painters or especially the ink painters or Guohua painters who were active in uh, during the Republican period, how they engage with Oil painting with photography, and uh, also with uh, reproductions of paintings, and also um, various uh, more ancient and uh, you know, um, indigenous um, techniques like woodblock printing. Is um, uh, so the these citations of one media of one medium in another medium. And the the pre, the preservation or the the re- modification of the medium specificity of the of the guest medium within the host medium, I guess, um, that's um, yeah, that's comparable to language translation, and that's also where where those changes really become visible and feasible. Yeah, um, no, how do you say um, you can kind of grasp them uh, more easily?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, as a media studies person, I would say that this is absolutely up my alley. And um, it's a great addition, I guess, to this republic corpus of work about Republican China that has taken this media turn, right, we can say. Um, But before we turn to painting, um, perhaps let's talk about the first medium that really came into focus for me, which was the art journal. Right, And specifically, you talk most about a journal called National Painting Monthly Guohua Yuekan that was established in 1934 by the Chinese Painting Association. And you analyze the, both the art that was printed or reprinted here, as well as the theoretical conversation that was had between um, various members of a social network. Right, So this journal was a kind of platform for people like He Tianjian, Yu Jianhua, and Huang Binghong, who are the main actors of your book to come together uh, and think through painting. So how does this magazine and the discussion that emerge here set the ground for the rest of your project? And indeed the Guohua project that's undertaken by this group of artists in the period that they're active.
0: Yeah, so the, the Guohua Yukan or National Painting Monthly, was the, it was the official journal of the Chinese Painting Association. So um, that was really a group of um, of Guohua painters who were active in Shanghai. And it was very – so it had lots of members, but Huan uh, Minhu, He Tianjian and Yu Jianhua all were core members, really. And um, – so um, the initial project out of which um, this book grew had the title uh, um, Landscape, Canon, and Intermediality in, um, in Chinese painting of the 1930s and 40s. And um, so this is more the canon part. So how was the, the history of Chinese painting, of traditional Chinese painting, of pre-modern Chinese painting, I reconceived under the impression that it was not uh just you know uh, the 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 unique elite cultural expression that chinese people lived in but it was one of several options that they could choose and um how what were the parts that they that they preserved or which were the parts that were criticized and how did they define it with regard to basically European painting practices. And that is, this is something which, um can be really traced through uh, the the articles published in this journal, especially they published their fourth and fifth issues as a special issue, which they called Special Issue on the Ideas of Landscape Painting in China and the West. And they really undertook the project to write about um, this comparison of Chinese and Western landscape painting on Chinese terms. So they... They didn't say "fengjinghua," which would be uh, the landscape painting in in oil or in the Western tradition, but they termed the European paintings "shanshuihua" too. So it was so "shanshui" was was the basis, and um, they kind of um, also it was um, writing in a way against this. Um, what might be called the realist turn or the criticism of literati painting uh, that was undertaken since since the early decades of the 20th century and the call for going back to the Tang and Sung as um, supposedly realist painting techniques when chinese painting was more realist than european painting so there's this preserved turn around the yuan dynasty or which they kind of identified uh, which is identified with uh, the yuan dynasty painter nisan so he's kind of the culmination a turning point uh, for the decline of chinese painting after the yuan dynasty and so there was this discourse that you know we have to go back to our um, former, former grandeur by going back to the song, Tang and Song origins. And so this was a uh, rhetoric used for, by, by people like Kang Youwei Wei or Xu Wei Hong, who kind of uh, proposed a realist, um, reinvention of Chinese painting. So what He Tianjian and others did was to say, okay, no, uh, but actually, um, European artists left realism behind, and the combination of European art is Impressionism. And so it was this counter-realist narrative that kind of re-evaluated literati painting as the, 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 the um, counterpoint or the, you know, the partner piece of Impressionism. So it's kind of a rewriting of, uh, or a positive re-evaluation of literati painting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in that sense, your book is a wonderful companion, uh, also in this podcast to Chinese ways of seeing, right, which is um, likewise tracing through a different type of practice, a similar type of transformation, right? So um, I hope the the listeners are uh, picking up on a pattern here of um, books that sort of emerge out of exciting new work that's happening in these fields. Um, So the first case study that you go into after you introduce this network is devoted to He Tianjian, right? Who is um, a very interesting character. Uh, and I'm really fascinated by the way in which you describe his relationship to the landscape tradition, right? You had just uh, talked about how they had to reevaluate the canon kind of figure out what it was about the canon that they wanted to um, press into the future as they developed Guohua. And he said, you call um, the canon for him a painting storeroom of memory, Um, So can you tell us about this figure and what this painting storeroom, uh, how it was composed, how he activated it, how he used it, how he used it, in fact, to look at the world and find that painting um, in the world itself?
0: Yeah, well, Göttingen was um, a self-trained painter and a painter who was really working for the market and who very proudly uh, claimed of himself that he could paint in any style. And... um, and he was kind of overlooked in, in modern Chinese painting history and until I, you just mentioned uh, Gu Yi's um, um, uh, Chinese ways of seeing. So she, she she's writing about Khotien Dian too and also does Pellet Chan. So there's this focus in recent years on on Republican period know, social practices and uh the, the activities of the Chinese Painting Association. So he has come back to um to to the attention of, of, of scholars, which I think is very important because he didn't really fit into the standard narratives of uh, of modern Chinese painting history and um yeah he kind of monopolized the editorship of of uh, of national painting monthly in, uh in 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 the last issues and um so he was kind of um yeah he was also in a way, also caught in this very social Darwinian thinking that kind of formed those competitive thinking about chinese and western um western uh, paintings, but he was very much really you know living through the the painting styles and so he had this one article where he he um, defined, the, he described the diseases of Chinese painting, modern Chinese painting practice. So all the mistakes that his uh, fellow painters were making, um, which can be kind of boiled down to either blindly following the old masters and not having any innovation at all, or being overly innovative and having no foundation in the ancient masters. So the solution he proposed was to um, first learn all the techniques by the ancient masters for several years, then go out in the countryside and paint the famous rivers and famous mountains for several years, and then finally combine both to find an in- individual practice. And so I think this is, you know, how he saw his own painting practice, and um, the way this, what you just said with the storage, uh, storage room of memory and how this kind of shaped um, his, his seeing of landscape or the the, the way he yeah, saw the landscape and painted the landscape can be, um, or kind of surfaces in, in one article that he wrote for a publication, which uh, um, is then uh, the in the focus of of another chapter, um, um, in search of the southeast, or dounlanzhang in in Chinese, and uh, where he kind of describes um, landscape through painting techniques. So he uses tunfa, or you know those texture strokes and other painting methods to describe the landscape. So it's really like. Uh, and i think it's 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 a way of uh, it's a notification system or no a, a notation sorry a notation system so it's just to to convey to fellow painters how to visualize a landscape he describes it through painting modes
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that Tunfa then becomes a a kind of trope throughout the rest of the book as well for your other uh, protagonists. But you just mentioned, and um, indeed, the next chapter turns to this publication, In Search of the Southwest, which you describe um, as a very elegant album, and of course, a very romantic title. Um, and the production was indeed, and I quote here, more pragmatic and closely tied to the Kuomintang government's modernization and building efforts than this romantic title may suggest, right? So this album is a multimedia collection of paintings, photographs, essays, poems, and even the calligraphy of uh, the great leader, I say ironically, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, Um and it provides an infrastructural tour of China's southeast, a region that had just been made more accessible and indeed visually consumable by rail, by rail and road projects that the government had been undertaking. So, how does this infrastructure underline uh, the album? The structure of the you know the texts that uh, of the of, of the album visibly and invisibly indeed right because that's the the claim that you're making um what can you tell about tell us about the role of ink painting in negotiating these modernization projects and learning how to travel like modern subjects
0: um so in search of the ti- uh, 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 sorry in search of the southeast it's it's actually um a huge book it's it's really large and it's Really, you know, it was a very expensive production. It was, um, it was uh, kind of the propaganda output of uh, something that was at that time called the Southeastern Infrastructure Tour. And this this term, Southeastern South Infrastructure Tour, apparently referred to a road construction campaign in the first half of 1934, where uh, Chiang Kai-shek. um had the um, the head of the construction office of uh, or construction bureau of Zhejiang province um, had uh, this this campaign to to uh, build roads connecting Hangzhou to to the provincial capitals of the surrounding provinces, and uh, the most prestigious project is the um, the um, Zhejiang Jiangxi railway, which was was extended gradually. So in the beginning it was called the Hangzhou Jiangshan Railway, then it went over the provincial border and eventually to Nanchang. And uh, so uh, it was, so that was, that came first. And then there was uh, this tour, which was um, proposed. So it was planned actually to tour people, to tour businessmen and diplomats. Along these new uh, roads, to to proper to to kind of propagate the uh, you know travel des new travel destinations to have um, economic modernity modern travel come to to these uh, places in the countryside, but. Um, um, a major incentive for road building was actually also national defense. So, um, especially uh, Jiangxi, uh, um, not Jiangxi but Fujian. I'm sorry, Fujian was. I mean, yeah, in Jiangxi you had the Jiangxi Soviet in 1933. There was the Fujian Rebellion in Fujian, which was actually quelled because they had the railway to move troops to uh, the the Zhejiang-Jiangxi border very swiftly. And uh, and also in all the speeches made by um, by uh, the head of the construction bureau in connection with these uh, with these infrastructure projects was all, already the threat by uh, Japan. So this was really um, always in the background, but. When you read the book itself, so it's kind of the the chapters are structured along those roads. So one chapter is called along the uh, the Nanjing Hangzhou high, highway and uh, and the Taihu, and one chapter is called along the Hangzhou huizhou a uh, railway uh, highway, and, and then there's uh, along the uh, the Zhejiang Jiangxi railway. Uh, oh no the Hangzhou Yushan section of the Hangzhou Jiangxi railway, the Hangzhou Guangfeng highway, and the Fuchunjiang River. So it's a very long title, but you can see it's really those kind of routes extending from Hangzhou uh, to to those other places. And uh, there's two things that really struck me. So uh, one is how, um, so the government organized writers and artists to really travel along those roads, but um, not all of the paintings published in the book were created in these group situations or during those travels. But um, the the editors kind of combined uh, texts and images into, uh, into a collective travel experience um, that the reader could identify with and imagine him or herself traveling along with those um, with those uh, yeah artists and writers and poets, so this is one very subtle structure within the book, and the other thing that really struck me was that how i mean although they have this know this kind of grid of of those roads on which they're traveling within the text and the poems and the paintings you can't see it or it just appears you know in the first sentence we took the bus to there and there and from there on it was set in chairs so they really traveled (laughs) in very very pre-modern ways so it was really more about um being carried by locals up the mountain, and uh, then viewing the landscape, and so it was more about kind of continuing pre-modern conventions of travel writing, or, and also which was maybe more difficult uh, landscape re- representation because of the medium of photography was is quite different in the end from from ink painting. Um, so. But especially in the poetry and in the travelogues, there's this very strong continuity to pre modern practices. So it's very conservative in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and maybe if I can interject a question that we hadn't prepared before here, but I wanna, I wanna ask you to give us an example because you do really beautiful close readings in the book, um, and indeed in your close readings uh, we see the scope of the archival research that you've done, right? Finding picture uh, photographs that match with paintings that sort of you're able in the trans-intermedial gap, let's say, right? You're able to find those invisibilities that are pushed out. And you mentioned this Fujian rebellion, right? So there's a very interesting case in this chapter where we we're, we were talking about a painting of a building that seems very idyllic in the way that you say, right? This uh, connection to pre-modern traditions of travel, to the literati. Um, but in fact, you have a photo that you put this painting in conversation with. So could you could you tell us about this case and what it reveals?
0: actually it's the same photograph reproduced two times so it's it's actually the same place it, it's actually the identical photograph in with uh in, in so it appears in 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 search of the southeast in nineteen thirty five and it also appears in um in another uh in a huge uh, photo book published by by the Yo editors which um a, a very beautiful um, photo book um is called um china as she is <laughs> and uh so here and that doesn't have a, that's a pure photo photo book with very short captions and in dungle lanshan it's embedded in a very Beautiful travelogue by Yu Dafu. So, who's actually in? So, he's who's very well known as a modernist um, writer, but um, actually, he wrote many travelogues. So I think this is in in Western language scholarship hasn't caught so much attention yet. So, and this um, he writes in Baihua. So, many of the tra- travelogues are in in. Um, Are in Venyanban. So, um, but he's writing in in vernacular Chinese and he's also really describing the speed and the feeling of of sitting in a car and driving on those mountain roads and, uh, you know, losing the sense of direction, the sense of time. And, And then he describes how you come, how they arrive at uh, at Tianxialing, which is a mountain range at the border between uh, Zhejiang and Fujian, and Jiangxi, Jiangxi, actually. It's this kind of three provinces, a kind of um, uh, uh, border. So you have this, so there's also a mountain pass, so it's the Xianxia Pass, and um, so, he describes getting off the car and then walking back up to to this pass and to the old fort of the pass and describes this as an ancient building uh, which may, may in the future be kind of left behind or destroyed by modernization of, of infrastructure. So, there's a sense of looking at something which will pass soon. And… Actually, I'm not sure if this, the, the build, the structure on this photograph that accompanies his text, which is also reproduced in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in the China as she is, it, it's, it's a bridge. I, th- I don't think it's the path, but you kind of, you know, in your mind, you connect it. So it's an ancient building and, uh, which is apparently at Xianxialing. So it's kind of, there's this connection between this, um, uh, viewing this this uh, this this bridge as uh, a, a relic of uh, of ancient China, so a monument uh, in a way. But then I realized, uh, and I realized it actually through by by reading the same story or the same travelogue in the published, um, uh, you know, in, in Yu Jianhua's uh, contemporary Wendi, so a later book from the I forgot. I think from the 2000s something. So, and they um, credited the, the text to Shembak, so to to the to the um, newspaper. And then I, I checked the newspaper for the story, and I realized that actually the story had um, an important part that was myth- missing in uh, in the in search of the southeast, which is that they actually went to a village. And the village was deserted and the inhabitants were traumatized and there were soldiers and there had been rumors about a rebellion. And, um, through yet another, uh, publication, um, of, of the travel, of, of this travelogue from 1933 or from his, um, so, uh, which had another part, he could really date it to the beginning of, uh, of the Fujian rebellion. His this trip, and also the, in 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 China, she is the is also mentioned, and then you can see that actually there's soldiers and barbed wire uh, in the photograph, but yeah, I, at least I didn't see when I first saw it in in, in search of the southeast. I just thought, oh, this is a nice old bridge. <laughs> No,
1: absolutely. And as you could tell by my own slippage, right, I had referred to it as a painting because I suppose I had remembered it as the more idyllic scene, right? And then the photograph is the the medium with which I would associate historicity in the present. Um, but since we're talking now about photography, we can turn to the next chapter, which considers uh, Yi Jianhua, who is one of the three main figures and who was most invested, it seems, of them in this contest between photography and ink painting. Um, and in fact, as you say, His works can be read as a statement about the ability of ink painting to truthfully portray the Chinese landscape and to do so even more truthfully than photography, a medium that is associated with scientific modes of vision and representation. So how does that tension um, between photography and painting manifest uh, and to tie into the next chapter also, where you talk about the creation of the standard mountain, um, how are Chinese aesthetics reinterpreted through photography? And, you know, take your time answering this question. You can take it wherever you'd like.
0: So Yu uh, Jiahua was, um, so all the three painters that are kind of the main characters in, in my book are so they were all, you know, active in the Chinese painting society and apparently they were not only colleagues but friends because they really um yeah cooperated on, on many levels. But um Yu J had originally studied watercolor, so he was trained in Western painting. And already in the nineteen twenties when he was still um very fresh out of university, uh, he he published lots of um of uh, records of his his sketching trips to uh, so he was originally from Shandong so his first publications were about his sketching trips to to Shandong but these don't uh, so they did those uh, travelogs didn't um, include illustrations and um, I haven't seen any of his early works then he moved to Shanghai in the late twenties and kind of started um, work you know. Being integrated in the Guahua circles and started painting with ink, and um, uh, he went to uh, to Yandangshan, to Mount Yandang, which was also a major travel destination for for artists, photographers uh, looking for the true true mountains, true waters that they could um, paint, and that kind of. Uh, could were used to reinterpret um uh the you know Chinese painting uh, on the basis of landscape observation. And um he he published a travelogue about his trip to Yandangshan in in the journal of the Chinese Travel Service, China Travel Service. Uh, which has the English name China Traveller, the China Traveller, so and um, and there he describes in a very detailed fashion how he kind of grappled with um, doing those outdoor sketching, how he grappled with the Weather conditions, but also with the technical problem, and which was the best, um, the best way of doing outdoor sketching, and then he kind of ends up saying, "Okay, um, pencil sketching does not look like inks, and therefore ink sketching is better than pencil sketching," and um, and uh, the the albums that he created there. At the Anangshan are now in the in the collection of the Nanjing University Library because he was he became an pr- art history professor actually at uh, at the Nanjing uh, Art Institute later, and um, but they were also reproduced in in together with the texts in in the China Traveller, and then in 1935 um, and 36 he created a series of three Actually, string bound books, which he hand wrote and hand illustrated. So it's, it's, they're really, um, yeah, unique objects that he kept with himself uh, for the rest of his life. So it, he never published them. And I'm not, you know, he must have wasted so much time and energy creating those, um, those books, but apparently mainly for himself. And especially in the, uh, in the first of these albums, which is called Further Travels in Eastern Zhejiang, and uh, which is actually um, a, a, a route that follows the main stations that were kind of always reiterated uh, in all the publications related to the Zhejiang Jiangxi Railway. So he basically traveled along the Zhejiang Jiangxi Railway. And uh, visited all those famous sites that were canonized within uh, the short period from between 1933 and 1935. And, um, in, in the layout, he really kind of cited the layout of his own article in, in the China Traveler. So it's a very, with, whip- um yeah with the with the headings with the text body with the how the illustrations are inserted into the text body that all looks like a modern printed journal only that um yeah of course the uh, the paintings are not of course but the ca- paintings are in color and the the writing is in calligraphy and um he really also plays out the 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 possibilities that Chinese painting offers with different formats. so he kind of cites the long hanging scroll format, he cites the album format, he cites the hand scroll format, and um, just on the pages of his album in the fo- in the format that he chooses for the illustrations, he kind of cites uh, all these different uh, modes of um, yeah imaging landscape. And um in many of these illustrations you can really see that he actually uses images from In Search of the Southeast and you know kind of cites them but overcomes their shortcomings because he is not tied to the limits of photography. So he doesn't have the te- technical limitations that you need lighting <laughs> to to make a photo that you have a thick frame for a photograph but he you know he could just extend them uh, in the images into a hand scroll format or he could paint the inside of a cave without taking care of lighting situation and all those things so you can really see how he visits he revisits all the stations that are visited in in search of the southeast but then Creates an alternative um, mode of representation based on the non-realistic possibilities of, uh, of Chinese painting. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Yeah, um, really fascinating stuff. A kind of zine, but made just for himself, I suppose, right? Uh, so how about the, the relationship between photography and painting in the production of this standard mountain, right? What is a standard mountain? Tell our listeners uh, how this comes to be.
0: So, um, yeah, I think many of our listeners will know what, uh, what Huangshan or Mount Huang is. So, because it's a mountain that has been very famous for its scenic beauty since the, at least the Wanli period. So, uh, late 16th, early 17th century. And, um, which was really also a travel destination for literati in the 17th and 18th century, and also there's this uh, Xin'an or Anhui school of painting that um, formed was or was formed by painters active in the Huangshan region and who frequently painted. Uh, Huangshan scenes so there was already this established tradition of uh, Huangshan travelogs Huangshan paintings and um you know this kind of a standardized also very much conventionalized and standardized image of Huangshan but then um also due to the Taiping rebellion and the Overall situation of China in the early 20th century, it seems that this infrastructure that had supported travel uh, during the 17th and 18th century was largely gone. So it was it was not very convenient to travel to, to Huangshan, and um, there was no infrastructure really to support tourism. And with this um, southeastern infrastructure tour and the um, the building of the Hangzhou Huizhou Railroad. It really became reachable for a weekend trip from Shanghai. So people took the train from Shanghai to Hangzhou and then took the bus from Hangzhou to Huizhou and up the mountain. And um, uh, there was the, the head of the uh, National Relief Commission was an Anhui native, Xu Shiying. So he grasped the opportunity of this road, road building campaign to develop uh, Huangshan as a touristic center. And, um, and also, so there was kind of the, the infrastructure and the possibility, also the, the drive to publicize, um, the, the, this newly reestablished, uh, touristic infrastructure. And as also with the other, um, destinations on the Southeastern Infrastructure Tour, there was a group of ph- photographers. So basically the, 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 um, the chief editors of the major Shanghai um, pictorials uh, were invited to, as a, as, as a group of photographers to, to travel to Huangshan and take photographs there. And something, again, quite strange is that of those photographs which were made for um, for this In Search of the Southeast project, they most of them did not appear in... In search of the southeast. So it's this chapter on Huangshan where you have a long text by by Huang Bihong on Huangshan and you have a long text by uh, Wu Zhihui um, on on Huangshan and where he says uh, there's uh, that Huangshan is that actually Huashan and Huangshan are the standard mountains of China but if he had to choose between between the two he would choose Huangshan <laughs> so, and so this is where this, this phrase a uh, standard mountain come, comes from so it's it comes from uh, his uh, I, I kind of stole it from his article and um, uh, so yeah you have two long texts but uh, very little images for a very photogenic and picturesque mountain and uh, there's another publication with a similar title, uh, which is called Huangshan Lan So it's something like collections, so in, in search of of Man Huang, basically. And uh, so it seems that most, so all the it includes photographs by all the photographers who went there on this southeastern infrastructure tour. So it kind of, it was it was an offshoot, and also then they 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 founded a Huang Society, and had an exhibition that was shown in in Nanjing, Hangzhou, Shanghai, and in Singapore to raise funds for for Huangshan. So it was really something that outgrew the scope of um, of this initial Southeastern infrastructure tour. And what, uh, in, in the course of, of all those photographs that were made and also paintings that were made, uh, you can see that the moment that, um, especially when they're put together on, on, on the pages of Yo, So Yo also covered this exhibition and had this double page spread where you have the photographs on one side and you have the paintings on the other side. You can see that in, in print reproduction. So photographs are much, e- much more easily reproduced and, uh, with this photomechanical reproduction, uh, than, uh, than large hanging scrolls. So they really don't, uh, you, you, you yeah um you can't see as much in 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 the reproductions of the paintings than in the photographs so and so they you can also see this very uh, um specific mode of mountain of photography that is created so the photos are all quite similar in that they have mostly have the pine tree in the foreground and uh, a mountain in the background and um so it's it's this kind of it's either the fo- the foreground with the pine tree that is in sharp focus or it's the background and um and in the de- in the descriptions of of these photographs especially in um so there's one article by the, by Sherman Lee also in uh, published in, in search of the southeast um where he describes how the group went to Huangshan and how they kind of stood on the mountaintop waiting for the rain to to stop, to be finally able to take a photograph. Uh, But uh, then he also compares uh, the mountain and and photography to Chinese painting, but he doesn't really, well, at one instance he says, okay, so um, it's, no wonder that Hongren, who is the main painter of the Xin'an school, so it's no no wonder that Hongren is such a good painter, because wherever you look, it's a good painting. So you get a good picture wherever you turn your camera. So he's really writing about the 17th century painter, as if he was holding a camera, and just, you know, putting it, putting the the, um, the, 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 the lens on, on any rock, and it turns into a good picture. And, um, and he also um compares uh the the effects of uh of of clouds and you know of of the mountain peaks rising out of the clouds to splashed landscape and to the martialat tradition uh or on the painting of myat so basically southern sun painting and um that is a painting mode that is very very different from anhui school painting so the painting of the anhui school is basically very linear very little use of ink and very dry and what the photographers describe is wet ink you know washes of of black uh, that is contrasting with white so they search they are searching for a model in in chinese painting history that can be translated into what they, uh, what they kind of caught with their cameras. So it's they reinventing, um, the Chinese landscape to, or at least the Huangshan painting tradition or kind of readjusting it to fit their own medium. And this worked very fine because, uh, that's how, so Huangshan is not no longer conceived as, um, you know, uh, very linear, uh, and very square kind of mountain, but uh, as a mountain where black peaks emerge from white, uh, white clouds. It's a fascinating story. Uh, and also,
1: um, I believe in this chapter, right, we have some images by the photographer who paints with photography, right? Lang Jingshan. So for listeners who are interested in him, you can also find some, uh, sort of deconstructions of how those landscapes come together. But now turning away from photography, uh, your final chapter is about Huang Binghong, right? Who at first it appears he's the least interested in transmediality or this transmedial landscape practice, certainly not as impacted by the pictorial or photographic turn. But you brilliantly read his work in relation to modern publishing methods, right? Those are also new types of media to uh, that allow transmedial practice so can you tell us more about how he mobilizes old and new media and especially woodblock that was very interesting um to produce albums right so how how does he read landscape transmedially or produce landscape transmedially
0: i mean home is something uh, someone who is um who who's always regarded as a very you know the kind of the, the icon of literati painting in the twentieth century. And he's mostly read in terms of, you know, brush technique and reference to ancient masters. And how he so his paintings are read with his own theories and um also very much his um his later paintings are much more kind of um yeah. Uh, so uh, no, or maybe his earlier painter, his paintings are much less studied than his later paintings, and um, so there's also not so many of his paintings from the 1920s and 30s that that are preserved, and many of the paintings I'm writing about. I couldn't locate. So I, I found them in, in reproductions from the time, but I don't know if they uh, if they are still extant uh, today. And um, so maybe one reason also for this kind of bias in scholarship is that before he turned 70, he was maybe even more of a writer and a, an editor. Than a painter, so he was uh, active in many many publications. He was active uh, as an editor of Shenzhou uh, Guangqi, so um, this kind of series of reproductions of ancient Chinese painting in colotype. But also, uh, he wrote many art historical texts, and political texts, and theoretical texts. So he was um, his activities were were very broad, and certainly brought with them a, um, awareness of the possibilities of photomechanical reproductions and the the um, the qualities of different modes of of printing. And um, so um, he was. Um, maybe I I start I start another. Uh, Another way around because I was just kind of when I started, you know, doing research for the project, I really kind of just looked into um, into the library catalogs, uh, which kind of publications they had related to him from the 1930s, and I came across this uh, double or two volume single sheet album that's uh, it's called Travel Paintings by Hor-Min-Hol and and uh and I looked at it first because I was interested in his travel paintings because I had the idea of uh, working on his uh, pr- place related paintings uh and then um I I realized that actually this album is is um so the 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 single paintings were painted individually they were not They they didn't, so they were of different formats and they also formally they were quite different. So it didn't, it doesn't look like he painted them as an album or a series, but it's rather small hanging scroll formats and some are wider, some are narrower. But within, through the printing on you know, in the, in the center of a white sheet of paper, in this very subtle and warm colotype. So colotype allows you to have um, no, um, how do you say, um, what's it called? The grid. So in halftone, you have those dots. How do you call it? Business? Yeah. I'm missing the technical term, but, you know. So it's very, very smooth and comes very close to to um, actually uh, ink painting especially you know when it's monochrome ink and so um it's it's kind of these paintings were made into an album through the process of color they were not painted as an album but made into a coherent set as an album through the process of printing and also um in the um the uh so on the back so it's those single sheets that are put into a sleeve and on the sleeve you have the title written in Huamin Hong's calligraphy and on some of them you also have some seals. So I saw two copies, one in the Zhejiang um Zhejiang Library and one in the um National Library of China. And um I think the one in the Zhejiang Library has the library seal right on uh on the cover too. So you have those kind of collecting uh Practice, collectors, practices of collectors, seals, uh, that, yeah, are, um, are employed, uh, with this album. But then you also have this very modern, uh, imprint and the titles that are printed on the back of the sleeve together with the catalog of, of other publications by the, Sh- uh, Shenzhou Guobangshe. And, um, and this, uh, and in the titles, you have this geographical scope where you kind of zoom in and zoom out, and you have very precise geographical information given for, uh, for every painting. So it really says, um, Huangshan, uh, she so She County, Anhui Province. And that's, that's the, 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 the detailedness of, of those geographical informations and where you can kind of really Follow, track his travels uh, through through China. And this is something, um, yeah, which is quite typical. As then I found in the, in the Shanghai library, I find another album, which is this woodblock printed album that you just mentioned, and which comes, I think, from an interest that he has in local history and local, you know, this, uh, so this local gazetteers. And many of his inscriptions on place related paintings are actually citations or quotations from uh local chronicles or from those local gazetteers, so he's really using the the texts from these um gazetteers and trans- transfers them onto his own paintings and um and these gazetteers of course often come with uh woodblock printed maps or or representations of the places, especially the the mountain gazetteers so um you, you can see that he cites the this kind of linearity of woodblock in, in some of his sketches and some of his paintings. But then you have this one album which his students and friends presented to him for his 70th birthday. and um, And so it's also very strange because it is apparently a, a birthday present by his students to him, but the paintings or the pictures are made by him. So it's it's again paintings tracing his own travels, and also numbered. So it's like Huangshan one, Huangshan two, Huangshan three, and Yandang, <laughs> Yandang one, Yandang two, Yandang three, and in these paintings, it's so not not paintings but woodblock prints, but it's woodblock prints that, in a so they have this kind of topographical. Um, foundation, but uh, again, and this is very typical of Huang hungs practice. This is kind of over, overlain by uh, his own brushwork, so it's really the reproduction of uh, this painterly mode of engaging with the landscape and the, the way he puts the the He presses the, the brush on the paper that is captured in, in the medium of woodblock. So it's a, yeah, uh, two, at least two directional kind of, so it's, it's the, the, yeah, it's, it's borrowing, he's borrowing the, the, the pre-modern woodblock prints, uh, tradition of, of those gazettees, but he, again, he's then transforming it into painting, and the woodcutters then can reproduce this painted, uh this uh, yeah, and very personal and very individual brushwork.
1: Yeah, and again in this chapter, we see this masterful uh, deployment of archival sources that you say you found in the Shanghai Library, so future researchers, it's a great place uh, to find fascinating uh, materials, but you have to devote a lot of time Yeah, but you have to devote a lot of time to get the the sort of nuance and complexity that uh, Juliana's book has uh, demonstrated to us today, especially during this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your book. But before we go, I'd like to learn about your future or perhaps current research. Uh, So what's new? What new, new book can we expect to uh, hear you talk about on this channel in the future?
0: so uh one one project i'm working on is what you mentioned in the beginning uh which is on the cultural revolution and uh, when looking at the cultural revolution as a 10 year span um that was um of course a very peculiar time in in chinese history and that uh, influenced all people's lives in a very fundamental way. And um, I'm trying to um, give or paint an unideologized, is that a word? So an unideological picture of, um, because I think it's too much. So the discussion of of, of the cultural revolution is still too much uh, ideologically, tinted i guess and uh, what i was want to look at is how did um artists or people producing uh, pictures in that time how did they uh, conceive of their work how did they regard their own role so be it a uh, young red guards producing propaganda posters, be it people like Shilu who kind of uh, was mentally ill and um, living at home and threatened um, to, to be executed and creating literati landscapes that were Incredibly expressionist, or um, people like the uh, the Wu Ming Hua Hui, the the No Name Group, who I met when I was a kid, and and later who um, who kind of painted anonymously anonymously in the parks of Beijing and formed this kind of utopian uh, collective, and but also people who who kind of had the most uh, successful time of their life painting for the for the national exhibitions uh, in the 1970s, and um, created what you know, what we now commonly regard as you know those typical Cultural Revolution uh, Hongwangliang, uh, very red and shiny uh, representations of smiling people, and um, yeah, so to give voices to those different positions and see how all these people lived through the Cultural Revolution, that is. Um, one uh, one project another one is on art academies uh, in 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 China and um, for me I, I will be looking mainly at the it was not the China Academy of Art in its early history during the Republican period uh, when it was the Hangzhou National Art school and yeah look at how how the institution of the art academy arrived in China and how it kind of Yeah, right there, conceptually, practically and pedagogically. And um, yeah. Great, so you're staying
1: in the Republican period and pushing forward into the socialist period. Uh, Wonderful. I look forward to those books. I heartily recommend your book, which will be available soon.
0: Yes? Yes, it will be, it is currently being printed and will uh, come out in early November probably, and then might be available uh, a few weeks later.
1: Okay. Uh, so we eagerly await it will have beautiful uh, images, right? Um, a very, very uh, thorough collection of the art that you talk about, which of course, adds a lot of pleasure to the reading of the book. Um, so thank you so much. And I will see you next time when your next project is published. Okay. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye. Thank you.